Welcome to the Rochester Area Heritage Society podcast, featuring our Back in Time Speaker series. Hey everybody, um, you guys know me, it's been, I've been here three times, this is like, feels like home for me now, so I'd like to share this with you guys. Uh, very particular about what, what uh, presentations are made at particular seminars. Um, so uh, this is one I've been working on, perfecting, and I'm so excited I'll just do it tonight as a, as a trial run. This is, you know, a little bit about me. If I had gone into the family business, I would be a fourth generation steel worker, okay? Um, I'm one of the first people in my family to go to college, get a degree, uh, and that's something I'm very proud of to be in company like that. How I got in, you never know, I don't, I don't know, but uh, this is much more my element than a place like we will be going. So um, I might flick the lights just, you know, on and off on occasion for this, because uh, some of the maps are important, some of the images are important. Uh, but as all you know, patriotic Americans, there's never a, never a bad time to learn more about the American Revolution. So that's one of the things I want to talk about tonight. Um, in 2015, I did a book called Hessians. Uh, I have copies for sale. Uh, I sort of analyzed the German experience in the American Revolution. Uh, th that is to say, the Germans that were sent here to fight, uh, essentially rented out by the British Empire. Uh, and one of the people I studied, and profiled rather in the book, was a German chaplain, a military chaplain, from the province of Waldeck. And he was sent with a British regiment into the Caribbean and into, ultimately, uh, the Gulf Coast region. Now, the Gulf Coast region was a major part of the American Revolution, uh, which we'll talk about tonight. And a lot of people didn't have a good sense of that, even still didn't have a good sense of that when my book came out. Uh, and it was such a, a, I feel like, a quick study of it, but definitely worth sharing. So. We're going to talk about today uh, the Patriot-Spanish Alliance, uh, which really won the Gulf Coast for both the Spanish side and the uh, Patriot side during the American Revolution, uh, and exactly what role they played. Uh, to understand this, you have to understand the, the colonies that the British Empire had at its disposal uh, in the American Revolution. After the French and Indian War, uh, if you'll recall in the French and Indian War, it's Britain versus France, titanic struggle for global domination. France had a late ally in the war, in the form of the Spanish. Uh, and they came in really at the worst possible time because the French were losing the war. And the Spanish jumped in just in time to lose too, okay? They, you know, they sort of the proverbial uh, throwing deck chairs on the Titanic sort of situation, they did that. So when the Seven Years' War ended in 1763, uh, Spain's primary North American colonial holding, Florida, La Florida, as they called it, uh, was essentially ceded to Britain because the British defeated them theoretically in the war. So Florida was taken away from Spain. It was ceded over to Britain in 1763 and subsequently split into not one but two different British colonies. Uh, there was East Florida here, which is you know, primarily Florida that we know, uh, with its capital in St. Augustine, the oldest city in North America, Spanish city, and the new colony of West Florida right there what we think of today as the Panhandle region of Florida. Uh, but really, it's even, it's even more than that. Uh, it is uh, parts of Louisiana today, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, and of course, Florida. So the British separated this into two different colonies because they felt it would be more manageable than one big one. And the biggest problem was because of who their neighbors were at the time in 1763. So we'll go ahead and take a look at what this looks like. Uh, this is a relative sketch over a modern map of what West Florida as a colony looked like. So you can see, uh, its western border is the Mississippi River, 
Uh, just on the other side of the river, I mentioned neighbors, is New Spain. The Spanish are still there in a very big way. And the only thing that separates them is the Mississippi. So part of the reason the British made this two colonies, one here, and again, as I said, one on the, in the east, uh, is because they wanted to have some administrative and military presence close to the Mississippi and therefore the border with the Spanish Empire. So after the Seven Years' War, you have these, this new uh, colony involved. Early on, uh, part of the reason this was successful uh, was because of this guy here. This was a British general uh, named George Keppel. He was the third Lord of Albemarle. Uh, and whenever Spain declared war with Britain in the French and Indian War or the Seven Years' War, uh, Britain said, that's fine. They're doing pretty well in North America. They immediately made efforts at Spain's biggest and most powerful city in the Western Hemisphere, uh, which was Havana, Cuba. And that one hurt because whenever uh, Keppel captured Havana, Cuba, uh, he really sort of dealt a really unexpected blow to the Spanish Empire they didn't anticipate in the war. So uh, if you're wondering why the Spanish were so anxious or willing to cede Florida to Britain after the war, um, it was effectively because of Havana being held hostage. Uh, Britain said, we won the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War. We have Havana. We'll give it back to you if you give us all of Florida. So for the Spanish, that was an easy deal to make. So again, that's why the British are able to take the colony of Florida from Spain, chop it into two. They didn't just give it up easily. Havana was that big sort of dangling fruit that they wanted back. Okay, so as I mentioned, um, you have the former colony of Florida now in two, East Florida and West Florida. And how Britain went about controlling this region was, was really unique. Um, after the British takeover, which was really just on paper, Spain put out alerts to all their people living in Florida. And they said, you have to get out, the British are in control. A uh, very scary thing for them. So they all became refugees and they fled to places like uh, places like Saint-Domingue uh, in the Caribbean, places like Havana, Cuba, primarily. If you're the British, congratulations. You just won this big new colony that you're going to cut into two. That sounds great. But nobody lives there now. Uh, the people that do live there uh, are a number of Indian nations who may not be very happy to see you. So the British need to entice people to move into this new American colony. So they make a pretty lucrative offer. Uh, they go to England itself, right? I'm talking England the old city, London, they go through the streets, they find the destitute and the poor, the ne'er-do-wells, so to speak, uh, and they say, listen, do you want to move to a swampy hellhole? Um, your empire would appreciate it. And they say, you guys have been to Florida, right? So they say, people say, oh, no, they'd rather live in the streets of London than live in Florida. Um, so they, they sweeten the pot. Anyone who moves there gets 100 acres of land for free and 50 additional acres for each family member you have. Uh, even more if you serve in the military or Navy, Army or Navy, you get 5,000 free acres. So uh, for Britain to do that, you know, think about the importance of owning land in a European world. You can't own land. Only Lord so-and-so and Lady such-and-such -such owns land, and that'll be passed on to their kids and grandkids. If There is no economic ladder to climb. If you're born with someone's boot on your neck, it will stay there and your kids. So that land enticement for them is enough to make them move to Florida. And boy, are they going to regret that. Um, as they get there. Uh, because if you guys have ever gotten off an airplane in Florida, you're immediately struck by the difference in heat and humidity. 
uh, and imagine that there's no buildings. You know, you're, that's just what life is. There's no air conditioning. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. Uh, yeah, there's alligators. There's all these horrible things. Um, but, you know, Britain has now two new colonies, effectively. The neighbors I mentioned right here using the Mississippi as their border are the Spanish. Uh, and the Spanish Empire is vast. You can see this is what Spain's North American holding looked like in totality. So yeah, we're just talking about the Gulf Coast, but this is a big neighbor if you're not careful. Spanish holdings look like this. In 1762, before the Seven Years' War ended, if you'll recall, uh, France used to control Louisiana. That's why it's called Louisiana. Um, they will sell that through treaty. Sell's not the best word, but sign it over to the Spanish. And the Spanish will change the spelling to Louisiana, you see there. And it's this big, vast area, largely devoid of any settlers. And they will manage it out of Cuba. Uh, they refer to it as the captaincy of Cuba. So Cuba is really this more than an island or anything else, more than a colony, Cuba's really an administrative hub for Spain's empire in the New World. Anyone who's anyone lives in Havana, and they manage the affairs all around them in Mexico and Central America, South America and North America from there. New Orleans is already a city. It's been a city for about 100 years at this point. Uh, and it's the, it's the obvious capital for this new colony of uh, Louisiana. As I mentioned, the Mississippi River is the border now, effectively, not just between uh, West Florida and New Spain, but if you think about it, between Britain and, and Spain itself. Uh, this is an imperial border which holds all the same import of a European border. Uh, this is now a part of world affairs, and that's really important for us to understand. New Orleans, uh, anyone been to New Orleans? Great, unique city, nothing like it. Um, put it, put it, we'll say, leave it at that. Uh, but it hasn't changed much. It's a mixing of peoples and cultures. If you went to New Orleans in the 1760s, you would see Spanish, French, Dutch, Irish. You'd see Indians. Uh, you'd see people who lived in uh, what we think of today as Mexico. You'd see people from the Caribbean. Uh, you would see British people living in New Orleans. You'd see Americans. You would see this whole mixing of peoples, Indian peoples. I mean, the city, if you're there today, really layers on itself, like very few other places. And that is not new. That has been a characteristic trait of New Orleans for centuries, really since its beginnings. I took my honeymoon there, as a matter of fact, uh, which, you know, it is what it is. But um, we, <laughs> we thought it would be neat, so we, we tried it out. Okay, so there's our view of New Spain. This is kind of Britain after the Seven Years' War in so many ways. When you talk about um, this time period, I'll hit the lights again. Uh, you cannot do anything but talk about this guy here. And I put that as the title, The Most Excellent, Bernardo de Galvez, because that was literally his title, The Most Excellent. Uh, I, I don't know how you arrange for that, but that's, that's what he went by. Uh, he was the governor of New Spain, or uh, better think of it, Louisiana, at the time that our story takes place during the American Revolution. He was born in Spain. He was not born of very high noble birth. Uh, but there was a sense that he was born into something of a distant nobility that we might be more familiar with. Uh, he lived a martial life, uh, like a lot of men who were born in the 18th century. If they weren't born to the highest noble class, the military was a way to climb some kind of a ladder. So as you went up in rank, you went up in status. Uh, he originally cut his teeth fighting uh, various Indian peoples in what is today Mexico, uh, particularly the Apaches. Uh, which, if you know anything about the Apaches, is a feat in itself. That amazing he survived that. 
Uh, and then shortly after that, in the service of the empire, he went back to Europe, where he served with uh, Spain's French allies uh, in France. There he mastered the French language. This would come to help him when he would in the future be appointed to be the governor of Louisiana, because so many French people live there. Okay? Um, he spent time in North Africa fighting uh, Muslims in what is today Algeria, which was a French colonial holding, trying to suppress a rebellion. Um, so he has a long track record in serving the Spanish crown. Doesn't sound like a story of the American Revolution yet, but we will, uh, we will get there. Okay, 1776, big year for us, obviously. Uh, he's promoted to colonel, and ultimately because of his service and his command of the French language, uh, and his willingness to serve in distant, kind of rough, difficult places. Galvez is named governor of Louisiana, which sounds like a great job, but when you get there, it's really, you got your hands full. Uh, you govern a territory filled with hostile Indians for the most part, and a collection of people who are like maybe 10% Spanish, 90% everything else in New Orleans. He made a name for himself early on as governor of, of Louisiana. He married a Creole woman. Uh, he had Creole children. Creole is a European who lives in, New, uh, in around Louisiana and becomes part of that culture. So he was really ingrained in the community very early on. But the real place he made his name was making life difficult for the British next door. Uh, and if you are Spanish or French, that is a way of life for you. If you can make things difficult for Britain, you are on your way to the top. How did he do that? Well, um, one of the things that Louisiana is still famous for in terms of the history they promote, is the amount of pirates that came from the swamps. These were British smugglers, and he really became kind of a bane of the existence for them. He would hunt them down relentlessly. Um, he promoted French trade uh, with islands in the Caribbean, which made their unification, their alliance, ultimately stronger. Um, an unintended consequence of chasing out all those British smugglers uh, was that George Washington's Continental Army was able to receive illegal contraband supplies from the Caribbean via the uh, Mississippi River. This is particularly important for us because if you were to get on the Mississippi and go due north, you're gonna run headlong into the Ohio, which takes us right here, takes us to Pittsburgh, and then into the greater northeast via the Allegheny River. So a lot of Washington's, again, illegal supplies, the British had blockaded that and made it illegal to trade with the American colonies during the war. A lot of those illegal goods came up the Mississippi, up the Ohio, courtesy of this guy's efforts, so pretty important. He really didn't care much for the Patriot cause, but he certainly, uh, in terms of his empire, would love to see Britain knock down a few pegs. So that's why he was happy to do it. He was serving two different causes at once. The other thing Galvez was, uh, was sort of innovative on, which the Spanish never really grasped. The French were great at this when they had an empire in North America. Uh, the British were, were really good at this, uh, was engaging with the Indian peoples nearby. The Spanish never put a lot of stake in that. And the French and British made fortunes off of the trade with Indians. So Galvez sort of took it upon himself to open up negotiations with some of the five nations of the South. Uh, the five nations being the Chickasaw, Choctaw, Cherokee Creek, and Seminoles. He was particularly influential in trading with the Creeks and the Choctaws. And the reason he did that was because the British wanted them to. So he was trying to woo them to his side of the Mississippi River, the western side of the river, uh, to keep them out of the hands of the British. All right, so here's where we get into a difficult discussion about the American Revolution. We have this great classroom, this restored classroom next door, where I'm sure, you know, kids have learned this from the very beginning of time. I know I did, I'm sure a lot of you did. But we always like to talk about 
the 13 colonies, right? It's like almost poetic at this point, the 13 colonies. Um, that always makes me laugh now as a professional uh, because, you know, that's really a selective memory that, that doesn't tell the whole story because the fact of the matter is uh, when the American Revolution was just beginning in 74 and 75 and 76, uh, there were not 13 British colonies in North America. There were 16 British colonies in North America. But we just choose to forget the other three because they make the story a little more complicated. Uh, so what do I mean? Well, we know the 13 major British colonies along the Atlantic seaboard um, uh, going up and down, right? 1774, the first Continental Congress meets uh, and invitations for delegates are sent out. And they're sent out to how many colonies? 16. Um, along with the 13 colonies we all know, uh, the colony of Quebec is invited. That's a British colony in North America. That's right there. Uh, as well as the colonies of East and West Florida. They're all invited. Uh, the founders in Philadelphia feel like they all have an equal stake in this. They are surprised to find out in 1774 during the meeting of the First Continental Congress when they get 12 RSVPs and they get four people saying get lost, four colonies saying no thank you. Uh, the four colonies that choose not to attend uh, are Quebec, for reasons we'll talk about, East Florida, West Florida, and to a lot of people surprise, Georgia also says, no, thank you. We're not interested in rebellion at this time. Uh, the first Continental Congress is very different than the second, which Georgia will attend. Uh, but at this point, um, they, don't, they don't meet. That's why when the first Continental Congress met, they met in a space roughly the size of this room. It wasn't a very big affair. So we like to talk about the 13 original colonies because when you say, uh, we had 16, but the, you know, the other three weren't really interested, that makes a, the, the song or the poem a little harder to to uh, remember, uh, makes it more complicated. So why didn't those other four colonies attend in 1774 to the First Continental Congress? Empire. And I put the Spanish Empire up there since we're talking so much about Spain tonight. Um, uh, so here's, here's the story. Uh, why didn't Georgia come? Well, that one was easy to decipher. Uh, Georgia was the most heavily agricultural um, uh, colony in the New World. All of their wealth came from growing things uh, and selling them. And if you know anything about the British Empire and their system, you could only sell, if you were in a British colony, to a British ship. So if they suddenly boycotted the British or rebelled against the British, their economy was toast. I mean, they couldn't sell any of their wares. So they were so tied economically to the British. For them, since King George was their only client, that's not a great business, okay, to make them angry. Um, that one's sort of easy to iron out. What about East and West Florida? Uh, well, that was based on what we already talked about. Remember we said how the British repopulated those colonies. They just went to the ne'er-do-wells and the poor of, of, of London and England, and they offered them free land. So 1763, we're about 10 years later, 1774. Uh, these are still English people in the Floridas, just living in North America. This is, these are not people who were born in the colonies. These are not people who had parents from the colonies, were raised in the colonies. To be American by 1774 was really truly something different than just to be British. And East and West Florida is the evidence. These people had no attachment to any sort of American way of life. They were still very much English transplants. So they weren't really open to the idea of revolution because Florida was so rough of a place to live anyway that they still depended on the British to send troops and send food whenever their farming didn't quite work out. I mean, Florida is not exactly known as like an agricultural superpower, even, even still. 
you know, tourism is their number one export because they can't grow much in a lot of that soil. So these people were still really dependent on, I guess, uh, on the imperial handouts to make a living if they wanted to live in Florida. So they couldn't do it. Quebec, not interested either, uh, because after the Seven Years' War, most of the people who lived in Quebec were still French Canadians, Catholics, which is anathema to the British. You cannot be Catholic in the British Empire. Um, but in 1774, the British Empire passed what was called the Quebec Act, which basically legalized Catholicism in the Quebec colony. So they were pretty happy with the British too. They weren't really interested in rebelling either. So that's why of the 13 colonies we always talk about, uh, 16 were the actual number and really only 12 participated initially. Okay, um, This is a cool map, I think. It does show you the boundaries of the various colonies. East Florida and West Florida were separated here by the Apalachicola River. The Mississippi separated New Spain from, from West Florida. But look at Georgia at this time. I mean, this is not the Georgia boundary we know today. And this will eventually become West Florida too. And look, they share a border all the way across. So the, these two cultures were not, in terms of the land they lived in, that separate. So that, that always made sense to me why Georgia would be uninterested in attending the Continental Congress. This is a view of uh, St. Augustine, Florida. Uh, St. Augustine was nice for the British because the Spanish had been there for 200 years at this point, even more, 250 almost. And it was basically one giant fort. Here's the whole city within the walls and ramparts of St. Augustine. Still a super interesting, cool city that you can still see this wall. One of only two walled cities left in North America. St. Augustine, Florida. Does anyone know the other? Quebec. Yeah, absolutely. Quebec. So that's empire for you. Yeah, that's what gets me excited because you can still see it. This actually happened. We have evidence. Okay. That's all real. So whenever the Floridas declined to participate in the Continental Congress, the people in Philadelphia are understandably upset. They're affronted by that. How dare they not join in our uh, almost catastrophic rebellion that really has very little chance of succeeding. Um, so they pass a new, uh, uh, they pass a new resolution in Philadelphia. Uh, that says this, all exports to Quebec, Nova Scotia, the island of St. John's, Newfoundland, Georgia, and to East and West Florida should immediately cease. So remember by this point, the American colonies are starting to boycott trade with Britain. Now the boycotters are boycotting trade with their fellow colonies who would not join in on their cause. Uh, it's all politics, right? These are all very familiar politics for us uh, because you know we haven't changed that much in, in 250 years. This I think is very interesting. On top of that resolution, that punishment, the Continental Congress will call upon a man from West Florida named James Willing to come to Philadelphia and meet in secret for a secret expedition. James Willing was from Natchez, which today is Mississippi, right on the Mississippi River, but back then was still West Florida. And he was a Patriot sympathizer. He knew the area well. So they called on Willing to come to Philadelphia. Uh, they said, we're gonna give you a body of men. We're going to send you to Pittsburgh. You're gonna load up with supplies in a ship, go down the Ohio River, once you hit the Illinois country, head down the Mississippi. We want you to go to New Orleans, meet up with uh, Galvez, the governor of, of, of Louisiana, and get some, you know, smuggle some stuff for us. We need the supplies. We don't have to talk about how desperate America was for supplies. We all know that story. Valley Forge, all these things. Men didn't have shoes. They didn't have money. They didn't have uh, powder. Well, we had to get it wherever we could. So New Orleans was one of the places we went. Along the way, uh, they told Willing, if you encounter any British shipping, 
destroy it or take it. So they kind of legalized him to be kind of a raider, kind of a pirate, but only British shipping. Uh, January of 1778, Willing and his 30 men will leave Pittsburgh, Fort Pitt, uh, go right out in front of us here in the river. I mean, literally, they would have went right there. We could see it uh, and head to New Orleans. Along the way, here's a glimpse of an artist's interpretation of what they looked like. You can imagine things fell apart pretty quick. As soon as they hit West Florida, that's the eastern shore of the Mississippi, they went crazy. They raided every farm, they raided every village, they took from private citizens, uh, they were told to raid British shipping, but instead they just terrorized all the citizens of West Florida. Uh, and by the time they got to New Orleans, the colony was outraged. Uh, this was nothing short of a diplomatic disaster. Because even though the founders in Philadelphia were so angry about West Floridians rebuking them to come to the Continental Congress, they would still take their help if it was offered. But when Willing's men went down there and just caused trouble, uh, that basically lost the colony for good. Uh, if there was anyone in West Florida who wanted to come to the Patriot side, that was gone now. All along, the British were telling their citizens the Americans are rebels, they're rabble-rousers, they can't be trusted, they have no honor, uh, these sort of things. They talk about the battles of Trenton and Princeton, you know, Washington basically shot us in the back there, it was a low blow. That's all military propaganda. But then they see Willing's force come down and they raid families and they burn down people's homes and, you know, for them it was um, just playing out the way that British propagandists probably really wanted it to look. A total diplomatic disaster. Willing did get the supplies, he did bring them back to Pittsburgh and they did ultimately get to Washington's army, but the bad far outweighed the good here. This was just not a disciplined action by any stretch of the imagination. Probably in Philadelphia, if they knew how this would have turned out, they would have never sanctioned it uh, because it became something of a free-for-all. Once this happened, West Florida really became, uh, uh, really put itself on war footing. British warships filled the mouth of the Mississippi River. Uh, Willing's Raid, again, eliminated uh, any uh, any hopes of any sort of a patriot uprising in the colony of West Florida. And the Gulf Coast was now going to be a place of war. Uh, and that included for the Spanish who were right nearby. I always equate Willing's Raid for the uh, citizens of West Florida as sort of like, imagine a person who's lived in a house for 40 years and sworn it's been haunted. And then after 40 years, they finally see a ghost uh, for the first time. That's kind of what that was. They were told the patriots were, uh, you know, rough, dangerous people, and Willing just made, you know, proved the worst stereotypes of them all. Okay, uh, May 8th, 1779, Washington uh, is, you know, really kind of getting to the, some of the most desperate parts of his time. Um, uh, he's uh, emboldened by signing an alliance with France, and we all know that that turned the war around in a lot of ways. But he also, you know, we also signed an alliance with, uh, with Spain as well, which gets less less press because most of Spain's help came in the Gulf Coast region rather than uh, in places in Pennsylvania, New York, and Virginia where we typically see it. So that'll come in 1779 and whenever Don Galvez, the governor of uh, Louisiana, gets the clear, all clear from Charles III, he already has a plan of attack ready for how he will cross the Mississippi River from New Orleans and try and capture West Florida. If he's going to do that, he knows there's only a few places you need to take. And West Florida can fall pretty easily. So here's New Orleans right here. There's a little yellow star there. Remember, on, on the west side of the Mississippi is Spain. On the east side is Britain, West Florida. So he knows if he wants to be successful, he has to win at four places. 
First, he has to cross the river into British territory and go up here to a place called Fort Butte. Uh, Fort Butte, they, they called an aging relic by this point. It was built by the, um, the French in the French and Indian War in a swamp. And when I say swamp in Louisiana, I'm talking a swamp. It was crumbling, it was falling apart. There was very few men in it. He believed it would be very easy to take. And once he took it, then he could move on Baton Rouge, which again uh, had a British fort, which was a major British uh, position. After that, he would have to set sail, that would be the easiest way, to Mobile Bay, where West Florida's second biggest fortification was posted at Mobile right there. And then the big one, the granddaddy of them all, Pensacola, the capital of the colony, a massive fort there called Fort George. That would be the conquest of West Florida. He's still angry that Spain lost this territory. He believes it's so easy to take if he just had a declaration of war from his king. And then when he gets it, he's off to the races. September 7th, 1779, Galvez marches on Fort Butte. That's right here, right up the river. Again, the fort's falling apart. It falls easily. What I think is most important about this is who was marching with Galvez, because it speaks to the culture in the Gulf Coast and really New Orleans, what New Orleans looked like at the time. He had 1,400 men with him. There were French Creoles, free people of color, free Africans. Uh, there were some American patriots with him, Irish dissidents that escaped persecution to move to New Orleans. There was Mexicans with him, Puerto Ricans with him, Dominicans with him, Acadians, who used to live in Quebec but were forced out uh, during the Seven Years' War by British soldiers. So they relocated, became Cajuns in Louisiana. Uh, and a number of various Indian wars from various tribes. I mean, this is, you know, this is colonial America marching all at once. Uh, people tend to have this myth that colonial America was homogenous. Everybody was the same race. Everybody was the same religion. Uh, look at Galvez's force and you'll realize how far from the truth that really is incredibly diverse place. All of them fighting in the American Revolution. So, uh, you know, they deserve their due as well for the role they played in it. Uh, Fort Butte is located where Bayou Manchac uh, meets the Mississippi River. That's right here today, uh, just north of New Orleans, you can see it. Um, Fort Butte was a relic anyway. It fell very easily. One person was killed on the British side. These were mostly Hessians, by the way. Uh, 16 would cap be captured. Galvez suffered no casualties. Step one in his four-pronged attack worked perfectly. The next move, much bigger, would be attack on Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge was defended by a fort called Fort New Richmond, and that was much bigger than Fort Butte. Uh, 400 men were stationed in it, 300 British redcoats, and 100 militiamen, led by Colonel Alexander Dixon. Fort Richmond would be besieged, surrounded and choked out after nine days not only did Dixon surrender uh, Fort New Richmond at Baton Rouge, but much to Galvez's excitement, he also surrendered uh, Fort Panmure, which was at Natchez, Mississippi, today Mississippi, uh, which really had a pretty sizable garrison and would have been pretty tough to attack, but he didn't even have to attack it. He just signed it away in the capitulation. So really the entire Western defensive line of British control over West Florida was gone. In March of 1780, so he takes a break for the winter, Galvez will set sail from New Orleans, land in Mobile Bay. This is Mobile Bay. We're not real familiar with the geography in these parts, but um, that's important you understand. So you leave New Orleans into Mobile Bay. The Fort, Fort Charlotte's up there. Um, two forts stand in the way of the conquest of the entire colony. One is, again, Fort Charlotte Mobile. The other is Fort George in Pensacola. 
Galvez will leave New Orleans with 750 men. He'll be supplemented by almost 500 more from Havana. Fort Charlotte will be besieged once again, surrounded and choked out. That's the way you take on these forts. After two weeks, it falls. Galvez feels confident one more fort and the entire colony is his. As he moves his men on warships uh, toward Pensacola, a hurricane strikes, which if you live down there, you know, past his prologue, is a constant fear um, when you live on the Gulf Coast. And he's sort of postponed until the next year in 1781. Here's uh, a view of a piece of Fort Charlotte, Mobile, Alabama today, that remains. But you can see it's in the middle of the city. There's a lot of things around it. But you can look at that and tell that is not an English fort. That is not a French fort. Uh, it's very much a Spanish fort. If you've seen any Spanish forts, that's very much their design. Whenever Galvez's Spanish force is washed away by the hurricane, the British commander in Pensacola, the capital of the colony, decides he wants to go reclaim Mobile Bay. That guy's name is John Campbell. He's a big deal. Uh, they'll march on foot to Mobile through the swamps. Terrible idea. Uh, that's why Galvez sailed everywhere after this point. And he will get tied up in the swamps and he'll be turned away. Um, and that's really Britain's great offensive operation in this entire Gulf Coast campaign. Finally, February 1781, with 7,000 men. This is a major military operation, 21 warships. Don Galvez will leave uh, Havana to move into Pensacola Bay and capture the capital of the colony. This is the big battle. It's one of the biggest battles of the revolution uh, south, of, south of the Carolinas. So it's a very big deal. By the time the uh, Spanish get there, the British have reinforced themselves. They only have 2,000 men to defend the entire city and 1,500 Choctaw Creek warriors show up to participate in the defense because they are, they are British allies at this point. Campbell, in his infinite wisdom, turns 300 away, says, we don't need any help. He doesn't know there's 8,000 men coming at him uh, from Cuba. This is a look at Fort George in Pensacola. It's much more a city than a fort. Very big, very impressive, gonna be very difficult. Not to get too much into the military details, but from March to May, so, so two months, there's a massive siege of Pensacola. It's an enormous battle. Um, the British will surrender 1,100 men, including 200 injured, to Don Galvez. When Fort George falls, Pensacola falls, this signals the end of effective British control of the colony of West Florida. And here's a look at some of the men charging. Here's a look at uh, Galvez uh, as his men bombard Fort George. Okay, so why do we care about this? Well, one, it's criminally understudied. How many people were familiar with this campaign before tonight? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a big deal because it stripped the British of most of their Gulf Coast possessions. Uh, and that's a really big deal because you think about all the ports they could have used to bring in troops and supplies in the South. They don't have it anymore. But it's a stroke of brilliance on the Patriot side because before Spain gets involved and France, kind of thinking bigger, the American Revolution is a small partisan affair. Uh, it's an internal British matter, and they were, the Patriots, badly outgunned. They were fighting one of the most powerful military forces on earth, and they had very few men. Washington had less than 2,000 men at one point. But by bringing in France and Spain, you know, the leaders in Philadelphia sort of made this an international affair. They sort of gave the American Revolution relevance in the greater imperial world of Europe. And that allowed France and Spain and some of their other British allies to really bring a united front against the British, which the Patriots needed so desperately. In many ways, it was a master stroke. Uh, as far as Galvez goes, um, a lot of us aren't familiar with him. He did have 
Uh, he was the colonial governor of, of Louisiana. He did have a, a town in Texas named after him, Galvez Town, which of course is what? Galveston, that's who he's named after. Uh, we don't say it that way anymore, but he played a critical role in this. And we should call it Galvez Town for that matter, uh, based on what he did. Now, uh, big picture, what did this mean? Well, the British lost most of their Gulf Coast possessions, lots of money, lots of ways to, again, most importantly, move up the Mississippi uh, and attack Fort Pitt and Western locations in the Illinois country. But even more than that, it really, you know, we're grateful for their efforts, but it really didn't behoove the French or the Spanish to really help us that much, uh, as history proved. We were really, thanks for your help at the time, but man, did that backfire on them. Uh, because look at France. You know, the war ends in 1783. The British are humiliated and defeated. France loves that. But in just, what, less than 10 years, the French Revolution's going on. France gets, like, no return on their investment here. They put all this money into our war, and their country just fell apart. You know, they didn't get their empire back. They didn't have anything like that as a direct result of the American Revolution. You know, our constitution's read in their salons, and all of a sudden their king gets his head cut off. Isn't that, isn't that a nice way it works out? So that didn't work out for them. Uh, and Spain, you know, again, thank you for your help, but boy, did they get the raw end of that deal. Because when they created, a, you know, or helped create an American republic, uh, all that was was death by a thousand cuts, slowly losing their territory. Uh, not to ruin the ending, right, but America would go on to expand all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And that was all Spanish territory that we, you know, picked up along the way, we'll say, um, to help ourselves grow. And even after that, even a hundred years after that, there would be rebellions in Spanish colonies in Central America and South America. And all the while they're trying to put out these fires, we're like egging on the rebels. You know, yeah, you deserve freedom. You want to be uh, free peoples. You want a democracy. And the Spanish are like, you know, stay out of it. This is our business, not yours. So we really, you know, they, had they known how this played out, they probably wouldn't have helped us uh, because we really expedited the loss of their empire. Uh, but even in, into 1898, the Spanish-American War, I mean, think of all of the uh, Spanish colonies that we helped to fight and we subsequently took over for ourselves. Guam, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, parts of Cuba. Um, those are all... Uh, this, that was all, you know, things the Spanish lost as a result of Americans, America's freedom. Um, but, again, thanks for your help at the time. We really appreciate it. So, the Gulf Coast campaign, big part of the American Revolution, understudied. And I hope this helped us understand a little more. So, uh, thank you very much. I know this was not Beaver County related. I tried my best to make it Beaver County adjacent, the Ohio River. <laughs> The Ohio River is always good for that, right? Uh, but does anyone have any, any kind of questions? I'm going to turn the lights on, guys. So it, does anyone have any kind of questions uh, about this? <laughs> a, little bit, a little something different, but uh, I'm, I'm glad to have the opportunity to share it with you because I'm excited about it. I've been working on it for a while. I was curious as to how you got interested in this perspective since a lot of your work has been more yeah. in our area. Well, for the, for the revolution... You know, it's way more complicated than we think. There's so many more layers to it than most people understand. We always make it so easy, us versus them, and, it, and there's so many more things going on. So I always look for an opportunity to explore kind of those other corners of it. Uh, when I wrote the book Hessians, that was the reason, you know, new perspectives on it. But the thing that really led me into writing and researching this was, in that book, I follow three different Hessian people. A Hessian soldier uh, who was operating in Virginia and uh, New York and Pennsylvania. Uh, a woman, a Hessian, uh, Hessian heiress who was traveling through Canada, and this Hessian chaplain, uh, this German chaplain who was moving through the Gulf Coast. So, and they all kept journals at the time. 
And so as I told his story, you know, this was like a critical background because he was at Pensacola uh, when the Spanish captured it and he ultimately got uh, ransomed to, uh, to Cuba. So that's how that happened. It's part of the book, but it unintentionally became like one of the only books to talk about this campaign. So it kind of, it, the book gained more, more significance for that than it was for the topic, which was exploring the Hessians more. It actually became one of the better things written on the Gulf Coast campaign. I know you do your research here. Uh, a lot of the times in the state archives, uh-huh. but for this, did you did you travel or where did you look at your prime? Did you have your primary documents or? For this, you know, the great thing about the Hessians book was we have these journals published everywhere, so I really didn't have to go to Florida for it. Pensacola doesn't have um, a, a real good handle on the archival stuff for this. Like, I guess what I'm saying is between between the web and the journals I had from the Hessians themselves. There wasn't a lot of travel required. Going down there wouldn't have, you know, I can't write it off, so it wouldn't have done much for me. But then again, there's nothing wrong being on the beach. You know, that's the other thing. All my work is in, like, the woods. It's all the Ohio country and western Pennsylvania. So I should have, I should have tried. Um, you know, I did, I did that mostly just, you know, interlibrary loan, right? That's what I did. I interlibrary loan. All right, thank you guys very much. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network. 